introduce to you a, a book this morning. It's called Radical. How many of you are familiar with this book? Okay, some of you. Uh, I want to begin by reading a, a few pages. Uh, he just talks about um, how we are called to live our, our Christian lives. And these pages should sound familiar. On one hand, we were created by God to enjoy His grace. Apart from everything else God created, we are made in His image, and we alone have the capacity to enjoy God in intimate relationship with Him. The first word the Bible uses to describe that relationship is blessing. God blessed the human race not because of any merit or inherent worth in us, but simply out of pure, unadulterated grace. God created humankind to enjoy His grace. You starting to recognize some things here? I hope so, alright? But that was not the end of the story because on the other hand, God immediately followed His blessing with a command. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. God gave His image for a reason so they might multiply His image throughout the world. He created human beings not only to enjoy His grace with relationship with Him, but also to, can you guess? Extend His glory to the ends of the earth. Simple enough, enjoy His grace and extend His glory. This is the twofold purpose behind the creation in the human race in Genesis 1. It sets forth the stage for an entire book that revolves around the same purpose. In every genre of biblical literature, in every stage of biblical history, God is seen pouring out His grace on His people for the sake of His glory among the peoples. You recognize it now? Um, I remember reading that... uh, paragraph a few years ago with our families. We were reading this book out loud. I uh, didn't quite finish it. Um, but we started reading through that and I hit that paragraph and I remember I just said to my wife and kids, I said, that's a great purpose statement for a church, don't you think? And uh, we have made it a purpose statement for our church. We exist. Rock Valley Bible Church exists to enjoy His grace and to extend His glory. I love the pattern of that. That that we just we, we enjoy the salvation that God has given to us. It's just not something we put on the on the back burner. It's something that we know and we have, we enjoy, we relish in, and we rejoice in. We have great joy in that. But it doesn't stop just with us. Extending His glory looks out, and so we can reach out and um, to our our families, to our neighborhoods, to our city, to our country, and to the world. That's why this is such a it's a great book that that did. That struck with me. So that was a couple of years ago. So if you haven't become familiar with this book, you will today. I'm going to quote several times from this book. And uh, I want to uh, just point out that this book is called Radical by David Platt. He's a pastor in Alabama, I think, uh, down south someplace. And the subtitle of this book says this, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Radical. Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. The American Dream is what I've entitled my message this morning. I want to show you kind of the, the frailties of that. But he talks about the American Dream. He says, as the American Dream goes, we can do anything we set our mind to accomplish. There is no limit to what we can accomplish when we combine ingenuity, imagination, and innovation with skill and hard work. We can earn any degree, start any business, climb any ladder, attain any prize, achieve any goal. James Truslow Adams, who is credited with coining the phrase the American Dream in 1931, spoke of a dream in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain 
to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. So is there anything wrong with this picture? Certainly hard work and high aspirations are not bad. And the freedom to pursue our goals is something we should celebrate. And Scripture explicitly commands all these things. But underlying this American dream are a dangerous assumption that if we are not cautious, we will unknowingly accept and a deadly goal that if we are not careful, we will ultimately achieve. The dangerous assumption we unknowingly accept is that the American dream is that our greatest asset is our own ability. The American dream prizes what people can accomplish when they believe in themselves and trust in themselves. And we are drawn towards such thinking. But the Gospel has different priorities. The Gospel beckons us to die to ourselves and to believe in God and to trust His power. In the Gospel, God confronts us with our utter inability to accomplish anything of value apart from Him. This is what Jesus meant when He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in Me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Even more important is the subtle, fatal goal that we will achieve when we pursue the American dream. As long as we achieve our desires in our own power, we will always attribute it to our own glory. To use Adam's own words, we will be recognized by others for what we are. This, after all, is the goal of the American dream. To make much of ourselves. But here the Gospel and the American dream are clearly and ultimately antithetical to to each other. While the goal of the American dream is to make much of us, the goal of the Gospel is to make much of God. And so we're going to find today in our text, if you haven't opened your Bibles, you can open it to Mark chapter 10. We're going to find in our text today a man who was, in some sense, pursuing the American dream. Oh, now to be sure, he, he wasn't an American. In fact, even when he lived, America wasn't even discovered yet. Uh, we didn't even know about America. Native Indians were here. But within him, there was a deep abiding belief that he could have anything he wanted. And he also wanted eternal life. He wanted eternal life and he wanted the world. It's like many Americans. They, they want the world and they want their God. And I fear that many Americans are like this man. They want the world and they want Jesus. Listen, but you cannot have both. That's what Jesus tells this man. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was sitting, as he was setting out on a journey, again, you remember he's in the area of Perea, uh, east of the Jordan River, shortly before his ascent to Jerusalem and his passion. He set out for a journey. A man came up to him, ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. 
And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to Him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And there's our hope. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the Gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, my first point comes in verses 17 to 21. We see this man wanting eternal life. This man had all that the world had to offer. He was rich. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. He was probably a lay leader in the church, a man of influence in the society, had many possessions. As we find out even there in verse 22, owned much property, and yet he knew that something was missing. Even though being a righteous man, even though being a religious man, even though having many things going for him, he knew that something was missing. And so he was seeking, as verse 17 says, eternal life. It wasn't haphazard. It was in earnest. But look at how it describes him coming to Jesus. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, 17, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in the days of Jesus, such a display would have caught the attention of many. I mean, first of all, it's undignified for men to run in those days. In those days, the men wore dresses, or, I mean, I mean, tunics, I mean, robes. And in order to run, they had to pick them up like this and run. And in doing so, they would expose their legs. Now, even today, in Middle Eastern society, men don't wear shorts. In Asian society, men don't wear shorts. Men wear long pants. And so to lift up their, their garments and then run, would be very undignified of them. And then furthermore, even kneeling before Jesus would have had everyone take notice. I mean, kneeling is a, is a begging posture. Kneeling comes when you're just desperate. It's okay for the blind people to beg. It's okay for the deaf people to beg. But for a rich, young ruler, one who has standing in society, for him to come and beg to Jesus just shows his desperation. And he desperately wants eternal life. He wants to inherit eternal life. I want you to notice how good this question is. In many ways, really, it is the fundamental question about life. I mean, everyone knows that our, our life on earth will end. Many of us don't realize just how, how short it is. James calls it a vapor. But we all know it's going to end. And, and this man is thinking beyond this life to the next life. Really thinking about what, how can I get eternal life? Because that life will last a lot longer than this life. He asked the right question. He asked it of the right person. 
of anyone to answer this question correctly would be Jesus, the Son of God who came down to heaven to grant eternal life to those who believe. Now, there's some things you might quabble with about this question that's not quite right. I mean, first of all, here, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, you can't do anything. What can I do to inherit? You can't, you can't get inheritance. Inheritance is always given to you. And even this fact that Jesus talks a little bit about the fact that He called Him a good teacher. Jesus took up that issue with Him just a little bit because He really got at the heart of what this man's problem was. He thought Jesus was this good teacher, which He was. But before answering Him, He says in verse 18, Why do you call Me good? No one is good except for God alone. This man didn't see his sin because he didn't understand sin. And so he tries to help in a subtle way get him to understand sin. Nobody is good except God alone. So, after the clarification, he gives an answer. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He told this man, Jesus did, to keep the commandments. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you need to keep the commandments. Now, is that a right answer? I just want you to imagine yourself in a Bible college, any Bible college across the nation, okay, any evangelical Bible college, and, and your teacher asks you on an exam, what must you do to have eternal life? And if you write, keep the commandments, what kind of grade are you going to get on your exam? <laughs> You're going to flunk. Maybe if you quote this verse, you might do okay. But you're going to flunk that exam because the correct answer is something to do like this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right? Repent and believe in the Gospel. Or even as uh, John or Jesus came preaching. Chapter 1, verse 15. He came preaching the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. It's not about working. We can't work our way to heaven. A fighter verse that many of us are working on remembering, memorizing this week was John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. There it is. Believing in Him, you're not going to perish but you will have eternal life. And then the, the new one for me, verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. See, Jesus came to save And He came to save through believing and trusting in Christ. So you want to have eternal life? Believe in Jesus. So, why did Jesus get the answer wrong? Is Jesus ever wrong? Okay, He didn't get the answer wrong. I'm playing with you a little bit. He didn't get the answer wrong. In some regards, the right answer. If you keep all the commandments, you will have eternal life. What's the problem? No one good except God alone. We're sinners. We're, we're not able to do that. The one exception to that is Jesus. The Bible's clear. He committed no sin. In Jesus, there is no sin. 1 John 3, 5, Jesus committed no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22, and Jesus was without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. That's why Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. He's the only one who hadn't sinned, and so being the only one who hasn't sinned, He's the only one who has power to save. And I think that Jesus answered this way though, with a rich young ruler. It's because he wanted to expose his sin. So what did he do? He put the law before him. After all, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. And the law shows us our sin because it shows us how much we are lacking to keep the law's requirements. 
And, and let me just say that those who try to ha- get to heaven through keeping the law will always feel what this man felt. In recent days, I've been reading a lot about Mormonism, just in light of the presidential election, first Mormon on the ballot. And uh, one of the things I've read about them is they, they believe that you need to keep all the commandments in order to get to the celestial heaven. And uh, I, read, I read this book, some, boy, I, forget, I forget what it's called, um, um, Leaving Mormonism, is what it's called, by this woman who just talked about how good she was on the outside and she came to church and was so good and she kept all the commandments and looked really good, but on the inside she's just burning up because it was all a facade, because it was all hypocrisy. People just trying to be good enough, trying to be good enough, trying to be good enough. And eventually she broke down, looked at her Bible and found that just she needs to believe and saved by grace and so got out of Mormonism. This was about 25 years ago and she and her husband now are involved in a, in a ministry. They've been for 25 years just helping to minister to former Mormons. But I think this man would be a Mormon at heart. I've kept all of the commandments, is what he said. Now, one of the things he, Jesus was trying to do was trying to show him his sin. How many of you are familiar with Ray Comfort in the Way of the Master? Not many of you. Really? Ray Comfort, Way of the Master? Is that most? Okay. Not. How many of you don't know Ray Comfort and Way of the Master? Okay, good portion. Okay, good. This may be new to you. Maybe you've heard this before. He, he has done a great job of teaching people use the law in evangelism. And, and his conversation is about right here like the same that he has with Jesus. So, in other words, he, he fashions, he's had this conversation thousands of times with people. He says, do you think you're a good person? And if you think, what, what do people normally say when they say, you think you're a good person? What do they say? They say, yes. Okay. Well, can I just go through, um, how about the Ten Commandments? You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Oftentimes they say, no, maybe. He says, can I just maybe go through some of the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments that God calls us to? And um, he says, first commandment says, um, one, one of the commandments says, you shall not lie. Have you ever lied? To which the person says, yes, right? And uh, so what does that make you? Ray Comfort continues and he says, it makes you a liar. And so then another commandment, let's try another. Have, have you ever stolen? Have you ever stolen a pencil, paper, shoplifted anything? And what do most people say? They say, yes, yes, I have stolen. So what does that make you? A thief. Uh, and then what he does, he quotes from Matthew chapter 5. If someone looks on a woman with lust in her heart, he's committed adultery. Have you ever done that before? And people say, most say yes. And if they say no, he says, well, you already confessed to being a liar, is what he says. And, and so he says, you, that's, let's, just, let's just stop there. You've already admitted to yourself that you are a lying, adulterous thief. Now let me ask you, should God let you into heaven? And what do they normally say? Sometimes they say no, I've broken. But sometimes they say yes. And so then, when they say yes, or if they say, if they say no, then it's a wonderful thing. Then the gospel comes. But if they say yes, they say, well, let, let's, let's put it this way. Suppose in the land that there is a, a man who brutally um, kidnaps, tortures, and murders your mother. Sorry, Mom. I'm just imagine. Imagine that takes place. So normally you're you're right there. You're talking with somebody. Imagine that takes place. Your mother, and then this man lives an upright life uh, for ten years, doing lots of good for society. Now it's found out. Comes before a judge, and um, this man is standing before the judge, and he says, um, "Please, can you?" For, I'm sorry. He stands before the judge, and what if the judge then 
forgives this man and says something like this. Well, I guess you've done this bad thing. You know, you've murdered, tortured, kidnapped somebody in reverse order. And you have done that to them, but you've been pretty good. And so I'm just going to weigh the good outweighs the bad. And I, I think, I think you're, you're better than you are worse. I, I think you'll go free. What, what would happen? Is that, is that a good judge? That's not a good judge. Is that a just judge? No. In fact, people in society would, would raise up in, in anger and protest over this judge who, who forgave this person of this heinous crime. And so God is infinitely more righteous and just than this one is. And if you commit any sin against His commandments, sin against the Holy God is an infinite sin. Do you think God will be good in letting you into heaven? And of course, then the answer comes, no. Uh, of course not. So, where are you headed? I'm headed to hell. It says, well, let me tell you the good news. There was someone who came and took the punishment in your place. And suppose, again, we have that scenario where, where one is doomed to die and someone came and died in his place. The, the, the penalty of the payment has been paid and he can go free. And if you believe in Jesus, He died upon the cross for your sins so that, so that Jesus died the death that you deserve. The wrath of God came upon Him rather than coming upon you. In exchange, you get the righteousness of God in place of your sin. That's the good news. Will you believe? And Ray Comfort has had that very conversation thousands of times. You can go on his website. He says it much better than I do because he's so slick at it. But I would, I would encourage you all, go to waytofthemaster.com, look at some of the videos, um, get, some of your, get some of the material there. In fact, even we've got a, a little track that we hand out. It's called Mr. Good Guy Track. You guys have seen that kind of around you. It's floating around a little cartoon strip. Same thing, same approach. Go to law, show them sin, and then talk about their need for a Savior. Because you don't have no, no understanding of your need for a Savior unless you understand your sin and what better place to address sin than the Ten Commandments. But I do want you to understand that that's not the only way to share the Gospel. Jesus was sharing it that way here with this rich young ruler, but when Jesus met with Nicodemus, he didn't go through the law, same scenario. He just talked about his need to have a new heart. When Jesus met with the woman at the well, he had a different approach. He was much more compassionate. He exposed sin, but he didn't go through all the laws of commandments. When he dealt with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he dealt a lot differently than he did with the tax gatherers and the, the sinners. And so, I just say that to be encouraged in your evangelism, there, there's, a, a, there's not one way to share the Gospel with everybody. Some people need to be loved before they listen to anything you say before you preach to them. Some people are so depressed in their sin, they only need the good news. And others like this man, though, needs to have their sin exposed. And I do believe this man is an American. So that's why Ray Comfort has done so well in America is because this is right where Americans live. We think we're good. We think we haven't broken the commandments of God. We have wealth. We have resources and everything's going okay. And few are seeking eternal life like this man is. But he is. Jesus is trying to expose his sin. Then he might realize the need for a Savior, but he doesn't see it in verse 20. He says, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. He claimed obedience to the law. Think about it. He claimed obedience to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He claimed obedience to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He claimed obedience to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He claimed obedience to the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. 
He claimed obedience to the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Now, in defense of this man, he was certainly a righteous man. He grew up in a Jewish home, probably. He was educated in the way of Scriptures, like every Jew was. He certainly had no overt sin to be able to profess this. He thought just like the Apostle Paul thought before he was converted. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Totally blameless when it came to the righteousness which is in the law. You think about how can Paul say that? Well, because he was blind. He thought, like all the Pharisees thought, I'm keeping everything because they're keeping it all externally in the facade like Mormons do today. Okay? But they're not, they're not keeping it in the heart. They don't understand that. Jesus could have taken any of these commandments, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and gone deep into any of them. He could have told them that hatred is the essence of murder. He could have told them that lust is the essence of adultery. He could have told them that stealing anything is stealing. He could have told him that even a white lie is bearing false witness. And he could have penetrated any of these commandments, but Jesus goes for the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. That, by the way, is where Paul's sin was exposed. You remember in Romans 7, he said, according to the law, is found blameless. He said in Romans 7, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And this commandment, do not covenant, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me. Because coveting so deals with the heart. Do you want anything? So we deal with the kids' club. We've got different motions for all the different commandments. I told you what this one is, right? Last week, what's that one? Seven, right? Seven. What is this one? Do not commit adultery, right? You're walking away from your marriage. Ten. Do not covet. Gimme, 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 gimme. It gets to the heart. And coveting just, just goes right down to the heart. It's not even a sin overtly. It's all a sin of the heart which, which comes out, certainly. And so Jesus addresses to him the Tenth Commandment, verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, by the way, I would just encourage you as you share the Gospel with people, as you talk with them, if you ever go through this very comfort kind of methodology, which is a great methodology, I would encourage you to say, okay, do I have a love for the one that I'm just speaking with right now? Do I, I, I really care about this person or am I just kind of going through a rote memorization? Care for them. Jesus really cared for this man. He had a love for him, sinner though he was. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What a great promise. Sell everything and come and follow Jesus and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, I think Jesus knew this man a bit. Jesus knew he was wealthy. Jesus knew he had many material possessions. And so, Jesus gets right down to the core. If you're claiming righteousness in everything, okay, how about righteousness in this area? Are you coveting? This man wanted eternal life. However, in verse 22, we see my second point, that he was wanting the world also. Verse 22, But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This is the reality of America. We own much property. We own many possessions. Jesus calls this man to sell all, to give to the poor. 
But he went away, I find it interesting here, grieving. He wanted eternal life and he wanted the world. As I said before, you cannot have both. One of the questions that often comes to mind is this. Do I need to sell everything? Right? How many of you have that question? Right? Do I need to sell everything in order to get to heaven? Well, again, I want to read from David Platt. He says this, I think there are two common errors that people make when they read of the rich young ruler. First, some try to universalize Jesus' words, saying that He always commands His followers to sell everything that they have and give it to the poor. But the New Testament doesn't support this. Even some of the disciples who admittedly abandoned much to follow Christ, still at a home, Matthew, case in point, tax collector, had Jesus come to his home to have a big party. Likely still had a boat, probably still had some kind of material support. So obviously, following Jesus doesn't necessarily imply a loss of all your private property and possessions. This causes many of us to breathe a sigh of relief. We go, whew! But before we sigh too deeply, just go, whew! We need to see the other error in interpreting Mark 10, which is to assume that Jesus never calls His followers to abandon all their possessions and to follow Him. If Mark 10 teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus does sometimes call people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. This means He might call you or me to do this. I love the way one writer put it. He wrote, that Jesus did not command all His followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom He would issue that command. Does that make sense? That Jesus did not command all His followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom He would issue that command. In other words, we, we need to live in this tension about how much should we have, how much should we keep. So what about you and me? Are we willing to ask God if He wants us to sell everything we have and give the money to the poor? Are we willing to ask and wait for an answer instead of providing one of our own, of our own or justifying our ideas of why we would never tell us to do this? This seems a bit radical, the book, but isn't it normal and expected when we follow a master who said, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple? Once again, we find ourselves back at what it means to follow Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus we've created our own comfortable with. The rich man in Mark 10 didn't see Jesus for who He was. The rich man perceived Him as a respectable religious figure, calling Him good teacher. However, Jesus was not and never is interested in being seen as a respectable teacher. He is the sovereign Lord. He doesn't give options for people to consider. He gives commands for people to obey. This book is kind of about teasing out some of those questions. The fact is, you can't have Jesus in the world. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. John said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because you cannot have a love of the world and a love of the Father at the same time. You may want both, but you can only have one. I do find it interesting here. This man went away grieving. 
the ESV and New King James says he went away sorrowful. The NIV says he went away sad because he really wanted eternal life, but something was holding him back. I mean, he desperately wanted to. He ran to Jesus, knelt down before him, begged and said, what do I do? And, and he really wanted that, but he just he couldn't, couldn't grab it. Here's the key. He wanted eternal life. He wanted the world. But thirdly, he was lacking God. He was lacking God. Notice how the whole conversation goes and we'll get to the, the phrase in verse 27. But in verse 23, the conversation goes like this. Jesus looking around said to His disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we understand this statement, right? We know enough of the New Testament to hear the warnings of wealth. We understand that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6.9 We know that love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and that some by longing for it have pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6.10 but the Jews had a different perspective. In their thinking, it was the rich of the world who were blessed of God and who were righteous. And because of their righteousness, God was blessing them materially. And, and in their minds, then, they equated those two things. So it was the rich who entered the kingdom of God. Like, picture Abraham. Picture David. And that's why Job was so perplexing to them. That's why Job's friends didn't quite understand. Here was a righteous man who was wealthy, but when his wealth was taken away, what did his friends do? They attacked his righteousness. Because they thought that if you're righteous, you'll be wealthy. Does that sound familiar? Sound familiar? If you're righteous, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, you'll have prosperity. That's what the Jews thought, but Jesus was shattering that in, in some regard here. He said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. Like, how can this be? And Jesus answered them, verse 24, again and said to them, He says the same thing. He says, children. He adds an illustration to try to make it clear. How, let's see, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were amazed. Jesus says this. And then, verse 26, they were even more astonished and said, well, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus is just putting up here how hard it is to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. Now, there have been some who have taken this illustration about the camel and the eye of a needle and I'm trying to tone it down a little bit. Some have said that there's this gate in Jerusalem called the needle gate. Right, maybe a smaller, smaller gate that maybe a person can walk through, but a camel can get through there if it gets through on all knees and kind of crawls through. The problem is there's no evidence for a needle gate in Jerusalem. Okay, a camel's going to walk in to the city through the big gates where they can walk through. You're not going to usher your camel around there, but there's no evidence for it. Some have said this camel sounds like uh, the word for rope, and so he's talking about can you put a rope through the eye of a needle? The problem with that is that if you have a, a really small rope and a really big needle, you might just get it done. But Jesus' whole illustration is, is, look at how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven if you are rich. In fact, even in verse um, 27, He says it's impossible. You can't take a camel and put him through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. And that's the point that Jesus is making 
And his disciples understand this. Who can be saved is what they say in verse 26, right after this illustration about the camel going through the eye of a needle. If it's that hard, and if the righteous are rich, and the rich can't get in, well then who can get in? And Jesus says, well, you're learning. It is impossible. With people is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that's the point. It's not just hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. It is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. You can't take a 1,500-pound camel and put him through the eye of a needle, which is but a millimeter or two. But Jesus gives hope. He says, for all things are possible with God. And that's what the rich man in our story really needed. He was lacking God. If he had God, he could have let go of the world and could have grasped Jesus. But he didn't, so he still the world like tied him down. It's like a leash on a dog. Right? You, know, you have a dog on a leash and you might tempt the dog with all the food in the world and the dog might really want it, but it's going to yap, yap, yap and go and you stop. But if you have a God who unleashes the leash, then the dog can get what he wants. For a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, God needs to work. God needs to change the heart. See, it's, it's easy for the rich to set their hearts upon the things of the world. The poor... They have nowhere to turn but to the Lord. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Those without resources have no strength, have no place to turn, so they turn to God. And poor people can often find God because it's the only place they have to turn. They can't turn to their own resources. But the rich, they don't need God. Why would they need to cry out for God? And, and, and we need to take heed of this to America, for Americans. We are rich. If you make $25,000 a year, okay, which is about minimum wage, right? If you make minimum wage, it's difficult, I need I agree, to support a family, but minimum wage in America, working throughout the whole year, puts you in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. Just got to think about that. If you make minimum wage and you work all year long, you are wealthier than 90% of the people in the world. Let's just double that. Say you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. Now, it's, if you make $25,000 a year, it's difficult to support a family. And I totally, totally agree with that. And the case in point is here in America, there's so much wealth that everything is inflated. But, we have resources and opportunities here that flat out other people can't even dream about that. Um, even if you make minimum wage, you could probably do it, certainly single you could do it, live in some cheap place or live with somebody or help cut the rent in half, and you could save up some money to take a trip around the world, okay? Or to make a trip, long trip someplace. Airplane, airplane fare costs whatever, $2,500, $100. You can save 10% of your income pretty readily, but, but people in foreign lands who are earning whatever, a dollar a day, $365 a year, have to store up 100% of their income in order to be able to take that same plane flight that all of us could do. I'm just pointing out that we have wealth beyond imaginable. It's hard for us in America to enter the kingdom of God. You just need to talk to people. You ever talk to people about Christ? 
It's, it's kind of hard here in America if you talk to them and everything's okay. They have a place that they can lay their head. They have television and internet. What more do they need, right? They have abundance of food. We have way too much of abundance of food here in America. They have access to easy transportation. I mean, if you're something like 37% of America is on food stamps, something like that. Grant, you probably know what the statistics are. Something like that's crazy. Because whatever, we're some, below some poverty line. There, nobody in America is going to starve to death. Right? Shelters are available. You can live. You're, all your needs are taken care of. What more do Americans need? It's interesting. When I was in Nepal um, just this last trip. And uh, I've heard stories in Nepal just talking about bringing the Gospel into these, these places where people just hear it and, and believe it. And they embrace it. And churches are growing up all, all over the place. That's why I've told you this before. But one pastor... I turned to me and said, how many churches do you pastor? I was like, pastor one church. But every pastor over there, they start sharing the gospel. they got all these branch churches of all these people who walk two hours to come, they hear the gospel and they're saved and there's a, a branch church over there. A branch church. It's not uncommon for a pastor there to pastor ten churches. And by that means, it's just a central church and then all these little fellowships which are growing up someday to be churches. And I told them, I said, you all, I remember with two pastors at breakfast one morning, I said, you guys are so fortunate to live in a place where the gospel goes so quickly and so readily. And it's interesting what they said. He said, it used to. It doesn't anymore. Um, in, in Nepal, democracy came in about three years ago. All of a sudden, the people of hope. All of a sudden, the people of something else. Before then, it was a Hindu kingdom. They just hated the Hindu kingdom. They had no hope. They were totally stuck. They couldn't do anything. They had no hope, so they could turn to Christ for hope. But now they're starting to get some hope and their hopes, as small as that is, are going here and the pastors in Nepal even are sensing it's a little bit different than it used to be because there's some prosperity and because there's the world. But in America, we are like those in Laodicea. John, Jesus is writing to these people. These people in Laodicea, Jesus quotes them and says, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Is that America? I'm rich, become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And we don't need anything, you don't need Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't think you need Jesus, you can't be saved. In a wealthiest society, it is impossible to be saved. And so, listen, let me ask you, how will a rich man ever be saved? Well, only when they, he acknowledges riches and wealth, that that won't be able to buy him every, everything. Only when he sees himself before God as a wretched, miserable sinner who desperately needs God in his life. Because that's who we are. To Laodicea, he says, I am rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Even though they have material prosperity, they don't know that they're bankrupt inside. They think they have it all. They're self-sufficient, but they're really sinners. They're really poor and needy. And that's what's needed of rich people. That's what's needed of Americans to realize that we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Then the cry of mercy will come. Then the cry of help. But how, how do we see that we're wretched, miserable, poor and blind and naked? Only if God works in our life. There it is. With people, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. When John wrote and told of the, the people who had received Jesus, he was really clear. He said, But as many as received Him, John 1, 12 and 13, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, 
And then he says, How do you believe in His name? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We need God to act. And praise the Lord, God does act in America by His grace. Every one of you who have a feel in a heart that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked have come to Jesus, rich though you are, God has worked in your heart to get there. I love how Eugene Peterson summarizes this text. Jesus said, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing. Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to get into God's kingdom. That then set the disciples back on their heels. And who's a chance at all, they said. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. But every chance in the world if you let God do it. And that is the, the great reality. If God asks, even if God acts, even wealthy Americans can come into the kingdom of heaven. That's where the hope is in this passage. But it's only when God works in the heart. It's only when God grants repentance. It's only when God grants faith. It's only when God opens the eyes to the eternal realities of Christ. It's only when God opens the ears to hear the gospel. It's only when God softens the heart. And when God acts and does that, people come to Him. But you need to have, you need to have God. Apart from God's working, we're lost. Oh, may God come and work in our midst. Well, this man who came to Jesus was wanting eternal life. He was wanting the world too because he was lacking God. He was needing, here's what I call my last one, he was needing perspective. Verses 28 through 31. This kind of gives us a perspective about what it means to sell everything. What it means to... To, to give it all away. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter recalls a time when, when Jesus was walking by the side of the sea and he called out to Peter and his brother Andrew and they're they fishing. And Jesus said, Come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it says there that immediately they left their nets and they're following him. From the best you can determine there in the, the grammar, they were out fishing. Their nets were in the water. The nets were wet as they were fishing. And Jesus says, Follow me. And they left the nets in the water and followed Jesus where He was going. Let someone else bring in the nets. It was so instant. That's what they would do. In fact, when James and John came, they were in their boats mending their nets. Jesus called them and it says, immediately they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants and went to follow Him. Dad, you can finish this job. Thank you very much. I'm going to follow this man. No two weeks notice for these guys. They just left it all. And, and Peter here is, is reminding them and saying to Jesus, reminding Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Remember what we did by the sea? And we've gone. And we've, we've got nothing. Great commitment. Peter said, we've given up all. Are we worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven? And here's the encouragement. Here's the perspective that Jesus gives. Truly I say to you, that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the perspective the rich young ruler needed. That's the perspective that all of us need. There is nothing that you leave in this life but you won't receive back in abundance. These disciples sacrificed everything. They gave up their possessions. They gave up their reputations. The Jewish leaders excommunicated them from the synagogues. 
They chose to follow Jesus when they did. Their lives were over socially. They weren't welcomed in the synagogues, weren't welcomed in Jewish circles because they were following Christ. Some of them were martyred even. They gave up their possessions, reputations, even they gave up their lives to follow Christ. Of the eleven apostles that remained faithful to Jesus, ten of them were martyred. They gave up their lives. But here's the thing. I don't think any of them regretted their decision to follow Jesus. I don't think any of them ever regretted, oh man, I should have... I should have kept that net because I wanted to go fishing again. In fact, you remember Jesus, at, or Peter, after the resurrection? He was discouraged. He said, I'm going fishing again. He went fishing and Jesus then called him back. Okay, no, your task is to be a preacher now, not a fisherman. I, I, don't, I don't think they ever like regretted said, oh, I really want to do that. Oh, I, I really wish I didn't give that away. Jesus tells everything will be rewarded a hundred times as much. And even I'll have you point out here that the health, wealth, prosperity preachers will look at verse 30 and say, hundred times as much now in this present age. You give up a house for the kingdom, you get a hundred. You give up a brother, you get a hundred. You give up sisters, you get a hundred. A father, you get a hundred. Mother, you get a hundred. Child, you get a hundred. Two children, two hundred. Three children, three hundred. You give a farm, a hundred farms. And they'll push that literally and I'll just say, whoa, wait a minute, you can't push that literally because you can't have a hundred mothers, can you? So there is some figurative thing here. And I think that what happens in this metaphor is that the blessings that you get in this life will all make up for whatever you give away. Will all make up for whatever you cast aside. God will make it up in abundance. So one commentator said, God takes nothing away from a man without restoring it to him in a new and glorious form. I think this whole idea about the the children and mothers and brothers and sisters, I think that's found in the church community. This is a family. That's why we weep so strongly for the Miltons today. Because we just our hearts burn for them and we love them. That's why we care for one another. That's why we serve one another. That's why we're around together with one another. That's why we, we help one another. So we've got lots of brothers and sisters here. We have resources that we can share. People have farms that we can go to. Uh, I love the fact I can go to the Gusky Farm. It's not my farm. You take care of it and I get to enjoy it. <laughs> what a wonderful thing that is. Right? And I've got a pool table. I take care of it and you come and enjoy it with me. Right? We've got all this stuff that we can come and enjoy and share with each other. Right? Or Dirk's got canoes, kayaks. Sometimes I go and share. Right? We've got all this, all this. And you know what? I don't own that, but uh, it's my, I use it. And you all use my stuff. And, and I I've gained a lot. We have a lot here in our body and we're rejoicing that. I mean, not even to mention us building in this land just free to use. This is appropriate for the church and spiritual activity. We have in this life followed Jesus and gained much by our community. I think there is a literal aspect there. But we just need perspective, right? Following Jesus is worth it. Oh, there may be trials and troubles, as he says in uh, verse 30, kind of work down there almost towards the end. You're going to receive all these blessings along with persecutions. Okay, so it's not that it's all, it's all easy. And a great picture of this is Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember when he left his family in the city of destruction, went to the celestial city? He faced a lot of persecutions on the way, faced a lot of troubles. His wife and children considered him to be mad, obstinate, pliable, considered him to be foolish. He had little good reputation in the city left behind, faced much trial and anguish from the people ahead in Vanity Fair or, or um, Giant Despair or 
or other people trying to pull him aside. And yet, the, God was always faithful to help other people help him along, like evangelist and the interpreter and faithful and hopeful helped him along. And women such as discretion and piety and charity and prudence helped him along. And that's how it is. You're, you're going to have this blessing. You're going to have difficulty. But the blessing is going to help carry you through those things. And then almost just an afterthought, Jesus said, in the age to come, you'll have eternal life. And, and that ties us back here to the rich young ruler, which is a good good reason to try to press through this whole text, is because he was looking eternal life. He says, you forsake all and follow me and you will have eternal life. That's what we need. We need a perspective of the overflow of blessings. And the blessings, I'm telling you, will seem abundant. Nobody will ever get to heaven and say, boy, did I get cheated. What I had on earth was way better than what I have here in heaven. I give him a house on, on earth and, and I just get this tiny little apartment in heaven. I give him all my property and I gotta rent this little place. Nobody will say that. God will abundantly bless. And I think that's the idea of verse 31. Many who are last to be first and first to be last. In this last, in this life, it may be the rich that are always first and it may be the poor that are always last. It may be those who are always successful on the outside, who always, who always get the prominent places. And there may be the poor, humble servants who aren't, who may be lifted high and exalted. Uh, Yvonne and I have a, a, a friend. I don't even know her very well, but we knew her back in UCLA ministry. And um, she's one who, um, just socially, I'm not sure how many friends she had. I'm not sure how many conversations I even talked with her about, but she has basically given her life, gone to Papua New Guinea to to be a missionary and has served. She's back in the area wants to have lunch with us or something, so we'll probably get together with her this week. And I'm just commenting, you know, the world might look at her as one who's been in last place. But, you know what? She may be one of those who get first in heaven. Just she's lived a humble life. She's served Christ with whatever energy and talent she has. And I think that's, that's how the kingdom is. The first is last and the last will be first. Well, let me, let me finish with one more David Platt quote. Now, okay, there's a reason I've been quoting from this book is because in our small groups, elders have chosen this book to go through in small groups. Um, so we're still working out where exactly we're going to have those, but those will be either Friday night or Sunday night. You just kind of put those on your schedule. Just uh, We'll meet in smaller groups at church, but we'll just read through this book. I feel like you know we need to be challenged. We looked at Gospel in Life a couple years ago, which was really outward. How are we taking our Gospel? How are we reaching out? Then this last year, we looked at the praying life, looking in. This is another chance to look out and just to say, how radical are we living? Are we living as Jesus would have us to live? It's going to be very challenging. If you're up for the challenge, I dare you to come. But um, we're going to go through this book here. And then he says this. It's a quote I'm going to finish with. Amid the many facets of the American dream that contradict the core of the Gospel, one ideal Americans have embraced coincides subtly with the words of Christ. As James Adams was coining the phrase the American dream, Franklin Roosevelt was emphasizing how Americans will postpone immediate gratification and even endure hard sacrifices if they're convinced that their future will be better than their past. Americans are willing to take great risks, he said, if they believe it will accomplish great reward. I'm not sure that's true so much in America today. We want it now, okay? But at least there was some aspect back in the the American dream, right? Suffer now and, and, and sacrifice now and the reward will come. 
In similar words, Jesus says the same thing. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. At least there is the concept. Jesus clearly acknowledges that following him involves risking the safety, security, and satisfaction we have found in the world. But in the end, Jesus said following him leads to a radical reward that this world can never offer. It's radical. This begs the question from each of us. Do we believe the reward found in Jesus is worth, is worth the risk of following Him? This rich young ruler didn't. didn't believe the risk was worth it. Do you believe that the risk is worth it? Following Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these words have been hard and challenging. They've been challenging to my own soul for sure. As uh, I know of the things that I love and cherish in this life, God, that I perhaps need to do without, perhaps others can do with. And it's challenging. And so as You have penetrated my heart, uh, I pray You penetrate others' hearts. I, I pray even this fall as we consider this book radical that You would penetrate all of our hearts. And God, cause us to, to know how it is we should follow You. The missionaries who spend all their lives overseas never come back saying, oh, the sacrifice wasn't worth it. They always come back overjoyed because you were abundant to them over there. Any inconvenience we have, God, when done for the gospel's sake, never is a burden. Always brings blessing. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that. I really pray for these small groups that we have that you would allow us really to to wrestle with these things and challenge each other with these things and that You would challenge and pierce our hearts, that we would not just be a a church on the surface that masks deep underlying issues, but God, address our covetousness this year. Address the riches we have and give us, God, the the grace to carry through. I'd hate for us to, to want Jesus and want the world also and then be without God. We need You, Lord, to to be with us. We can't do it in our own strength. We need you to stir our hearts and be with us and strengthen us and, and give us glimpses of the celestial city and give us glimpses of what it means to follow Jesus totally and completely. Father, we would follow after you and, and love you. I pray that we would be a radical church that just steps out and does what we can by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. So help us, O oh Lord, to enjoy your grace and to extend your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.